Bring me all of your dreams, you dreamer. Bring me all your heart melodies, that I may wrap them in a blue cloud cloth, away from the two rough fingers of the world. Langston Hughes Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Coffee, Tea, and Crime. This is Dana, and in today's episode, JR and I will be in Atlanta, Georgia, to look at a horrific orgy of murder. This is the story of Traitor in Death, the 1999 Atlanta Spree Murders. Our story begins on Labor Day weekend of 1993 in Cherokee County, Alabama. The bodies of 36-year-old Deborah Barton and her mother, Eloise Spivey, were found in a blood-spattered camper at the Riverside Campground on Weiss Lake. The two women had been hacked to death with a heavy-bladed weapon. The campers showed no signs of forced entry. Witnesses had heard a man and woman loudly arguing around 9 p.m. that night. Two witnesses had seen a man running from the camper that evening. The bodies were discovered on Sunday, September 5th. Police in Cherokee County became extremely interested in Mark Barton when they discovered the husband had taken out a $600,000 life insurance policy on his wife just weeks before she was killed. Barton's alibi was he was at home in Lethia Springs, Georgia, watching the kids. A nasty rumor swirled that his mistress's car was seen parked in the driveway of the Barton home on that Labor Day weekend. The mistress, Leanne, would later become Mark Barton's second wife. Talk around the campfire is that Barton traveled to Alabama to ask his wife for a divorce. An argument ensued, and in the heat of the moment, Barton murdered his wife and mother-in-law and just happened to have a hatchet in his pocket for good luck. We think a more likely scenario is Barton got the insurance policy after deciding his wife had to die, thus sparing himself child support payments, gaining a big cash windfall and a hot young girlfriend. He just waited for the right moment. Ms. Spivey, the mother-in-law, was simply collateral damage in his master plan. He had mentioned to some that he would be with Leanne by October of 1993. So, Barton was either clairvoyant or a premeditated murderer. Some sources claim Barton had experimented with psychedelic drugs at the tender age of 16 and was never the same. But considering his arrest history for burglary and his obvious dislike for his father, who he considered too stern, Barton seemed to be a paranoid, bad seed with an inflated ego and a very short emotional fuse. So enough about his growing pains. In 1995, he married Leanne, and over the next four years, their marriage was rocky with a few separations thrown in for good measure. Barton had to sue the insurance company over the $600,000 insurance policy. For some odd reason, the company suspected he had committed the murder and didn't want to pay. May have had something to do with the blood Alabama authorities found in Barton's car. Strangely, police from Cherokee County didn't seize the car at that moment, and when they came back days later, the car had been thoroughly cleaned. Psst! Don't ask Georgia authorities what they think of the murder investigation conducted by Alabama. When the legal smoke dissipated, Barton cleared close to $200,000 of the $450,000 settlement. The kids had $150,000 put in a trust, and the lawyers got the rest. Barton then decided he was going to delve into the investment world and became a day trader. 
What could possibly have happened when a guy who dabbled in hallucinogenic drugs when he was younger, and if rumors were true, graduated to crystal meth, combined with a deep-rooted paranoia and anger management issue, became a day trader? There is no if in this equation. It's only a question of when the proverbial shit hits the fan. Day trading, statistically speaking, is not a profitable endeavor unless you are the financial firm involved. It was not a shock that Barton's nickname within the day trading community was Rocket due to his explosive temper. Barton began trading at Alltech in April 1998. Alltech Investment Group, Inc. had their offices in Suite 215, Building 8 of the Piedmont Center at 3525 Piedmont Road. He represented to Alltech that his net worth was $500,000. Alltech didn't bother to verify Barton's representations about his assets. He deposited $100,000 in his Alltech account before he began trading. Over the next 11 months, Barton sustained staggering losses, including over $200,000 just in August of 1998. No manager of Alltech met with Barton about his losses or reevaluated his suitability for day trading. Why would you if you were profiting by his loss? By May 10th of 1999, Barton had lost more than his total investment of almost $400,000 and owed Alltech more than $30,000. At that point, Alltech closed Barton's account. Within days, Barton went to Momentum Securities, Inc., who had a third floor suite at two Securities Center building across the street from Alltech at 3500 Piedmont Road. He represented to Momentum that his net worth was $750,000. Like Alltech, Momentum wasn't interested in verification of Barton's financial information. Again, Barton deposited $100,000 before he began trading. In the six weeks before his daily rampage, Barton lost most of his total investment of $137,500. Managers froze his account, but no one met with Barton about his losses or reevaluated his suitability for day trading. The fuse was lit and the explosion that followed was loud, terrifying, and ugly. Tuesday night, July 27, 1999, Barton beat his wife to death with a hammer as she lay sleeping in their bed and stuffed her body in the bedroom closet. The next morning and afternoon, Barton stayed in the apartment with his 11-year-old son, Matthew, and his daughter, 8-year-old Michelle. On Wednesday night, Barton smashed the hammer into his children's heads before carrying each one to the bathroom and holding their heads down in a bathtub full of water to make sure they were dead. Authorities said he tidied up, put the kids back in bed, and tucked them in. They said he left a video game on Matthew's body and a stuffed toy on Michelle's body. Now he was alone in an apartment with three bodies. He booted up a home computer and started typing a self-serving, hey, let me justify all that I have done and I'm about to do because I'm too much of a sniveling coward to face up to my own inadequacies. He addressed it to whom it may concern and dated it Thursday, July 29th. The time was noted as 6.38 a.m. I don't plan to live very much longer, he said, just long enough to kill as many of the people that greedily sought my destruction. If he was looking for someone to blame for his destruction, then a simple glance in the mirror would have sufficed. Barton headed north from his apartment towards Buckhead, armed with a Colt 45 Model 1911 A1 semi-automatic pistol, a Glock 9mm Model 17 semi-automatic pistol, 
an H&R 22 caliber revolver, and a Raven 25 caliber model MP25 semi-automatic pistol. Before going to Altex and Momentum's offices, Barton called managers announcing that he would be coming by with a check for each to reactivate his accounts. At somewhere around 2 p.m. that day, Barton went to Momentum's third floor office suite and asked to speak to a particular manager. Before that manager arrived, Barton shot another manager and then began shooting other people working on the trading floor. It was 2.50 p.m. when Atlanta police received the first 911 call reporting the shooting at 3500 Piedmont Momentum Securities. Arriving officers found carnage in two securities center. Four people lay dead. Barton left the Momentum suite, walked across the street to Altec's second floor office suite, and asked to speak to certain managers. While meeting with three managers in an office, Barton began firing his weapons. He left the office and continued firing as he moved along the trading floor, leaving bodies strewn all about the second floor. As other officers arrived, they were told that shots were coming from Suite 215 in Building 8 of the Piedmont Center, an office complex made up of 11 buildings. A security guard from Barton Protective Services, Inc., this company is not related to Barton, told officers he heard several shots. The officers went inside and saw five bloodied bodies slumped over computer terminals. About 3.30 p.m., a female and other employees at the Ivy Place building at 3423 Piedmont Road watched a man wearing a red shirt and khaki pants running south on Piedmont Road toward the Buckhead Loop intersection. This female and her co-workers had heard from radio and TV reports that police were looking for a shooter wearing those exact clothes. We had no idea he had just shot the people at Piedmont Center. We watched him because he looked strange. He was carrying like a knapsack on his back and he was acting nervous. She said the man ran along the Buckhead Loop in the direction of Phipps Plaza on Lennox Road. He stopped short, however, when he spotted an Atlanta police cruiser rolling his way. At that point, he looked around and then walked up the driveway of a building that was under construction. He kept looking around and looking over his shoulder. He noticed two more officers at the top of the driveway. He then turned around, walked back to the street, and then ran into a patch of woods. We never saw him after that. It seemed both civilians and police were so caught up in the moment they forgot to see and react to what was in front of them, and Barton literally sashayed out the front door and escaped. Tactical units from Atlanta PD and Feds cleared offices floor by floor at 3500 and 3525 Piedmont Road, as well as nearby parking garages, while Barton was motoring north on I-75 in his 1992 dark green Ford Aerostar van. Destination? Parts unknown. No one knows what Barton did for the next three hours, but he popped his head out only half an hour away from the sea of blood he had created. Sometime around 7.15 p.m. or so, a woman who'd been shopping at Rich's department store within the town center mall in Kennesaw was strolling to her car. Barton walked toward her. He had his black bag hanging from his shoulder with one hand inside the bag. He told her not to scream or he would shoot her. The woman slowly backed away. Then Barton told her, don't run or I'll shoot you. She made the right choice. She ran as fast as she could. No shots were fired. 
It was a shame that Barton's work as a family annihilator, spree shooter, and mass murderer was not as unsuccessful as his short career as a carjacker. The female ran into the mall and notified security officers who discovered Barton's van in the sprawling parking lot. They retreated inside and notified police. A heroic female, Manon Smith, was also at the mall and saw Barton in the parking lot and recognized him as the suspect in the deadliest mass murder in Georgia history. Unlike others earlier in the day, Smith proved her worth as a model citizen. She pulled out her cell phone, dialed 911, and told the call taker that Barton was in a mall in Kennesaw. Operators at first were just a little more than skeptical, but when she described the van and read off the license plate, they were believers. Within minutes, law enforcement agencies in and around Kennesaw were aware that a maniacal killer had come calling. She briefly followed Barton's van through the parking lots until he turned onto Barrett Parkway. He turned right toward I-75. She turned left. She had done more than enough. Cobb County Police Officer Huel Clements was on I-75 just north of the 269 exit for Kennesaw when he saw a minivan matching the description of Barton's minivan. He relayed the tag number and the dispatcher confirmed it was Barton's minivan. He followed Barton from a distance hoping backup units arrived before Barton spotted him and attempted any evasive maneuvers, which would have endangered the public. About 7.50 p.m., Barton turned off the interstate onto Georgia 92 in Ackworth, just three exits north of where he had entered the interstate from Kennesaw. Barton turned left on Highway 92, crossed over I-75, and continued to the intersection of Highway 92 and Baker Road. He turned into a BP gas station on the corner across the street from a McDonald's. Dane Pritchett, sitting in the back seat of a car in the McDonald's parking lot, said Barton slowed at the gas pumps as if he were going to stop, but then pulled up about 35 feet to a spot between the pumps and a car wash. Ackworth Police Corporal Curtis Endicott stopped in front of the minivan. Clements, behind Barton's minivan, got out of his car, drew his gun, and crouched behind the door of his patrol car. As Endicott opened the door of his police car, Barton raised the 9mm pistol to one side of his head and a 45 caliber pistol to the other. We heard a muffled sound, Pritchett said, and his head fell against the steering wheel. Barton had finally done something right. He was dead. It was sad he hadn't done this days before, and 12 people would have still been alive. Well, as JR loves to quote from one of our favorite movies, no problems. Gotta go. Bodies on the road. And that'll do it for another episode of Coffee, Tea, and Crime. Please let us know what you think about this case in the comments below we're interested and if you have a suggestion for a case you'd like us to cover in a future episode we'd love to hear from you thank you so much for watching and please give us a like if you enjoyed the video by hitting that thumbs up button and as always if you would feel so inclined to subscribe we'd love that too stay safe out there and jr and i will see you on the next case